May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Yeah, so what does she look like? That's the question that every friend asks his buddy when he finds out that he's been set up on a blind date. So what does she look like? They're called blind dates because you have no idea. It's not because you're going out with somebody who's blind, although you might be. But that's really not the reason, is it? You call them blind dates because you have no idea what the person looks like. You've never actually seen them. I suppose for people today, the whole social media thing probably messes up the whole blind date stuff. You know, it's almost impossible not to be able to find a photo of somebody out in the world and so maybe blind dates are now reserved only for the technologically challenged. That is, those people who are older than 30 or whatever, you know, that, that don't use. Otherwise, you're pretty much able to figure it out. But most of you remember a blind date. Remember how difficult it was, you know. And, and then you would ask your friend, you know, well, what does she or he look like? And they would begin to describe it's difficult to describe somebody to someone else, isn't it? Oh, yeah, well, he's about yay tall and dark hair and a mustache, you know. I mean, it could be Tom Selleck or it could not be, you know. Um, or, uh, you know, she's, uh, you know, short with brown hair and blue eyes. I mean, that description could be somebody, you know, a gorgeous woman like my wife. Or it could have been Georgia Chapman, this girl I went with, uh, I knew in high school, I didn't, go, I didn't went with her, nobody did. Um, the poor girl, I don't think she had a single date in the entire high school. She had a lovely personality, and that's the death knell right there, isn't it? Um, lovely personality. Um, nobody wants to go on a blind date where the first descriptive is, she has a nice personality. I mean... Nice can be a, a mod, you know, modifier for a lot of um, attributes, but if it begins with personality, there's trouble, isn't there? And if you've ever been on one of these sort of social occasions, you know the anxiety that you felt. It's natural. It's normal to have such anxiety. It's not because you're shallow. You are shallow, but that's not the reason that you felt that way. It was a different, you had, you had a sense of, oh no, what is this going to be like? It's really difficult to describe something to another person. It's especially true when it comes to rare forms of beauty. If it's a common form of beauty, something that everybody knows, it's rather easy. For instance, if I said to you, imagine a sunset in the summertime... In a quiet meadow. Boom, boom, boom. You've got that picture right now, don't you? You're there. You can see that. We've all seen that. And I could change it. I could tweak it just a little bit and say, imagine a sunset over the Caribbean. And all of a sudden, that, that file in your mind gets put away. The other one over the meadow. And you, you've pulled out enough just that quick. Sunset. Beautiful. What's the, what's the context? And, and, and just a little bit of change. I've never actually been to the Caribbean. I've never been on a cruise or anything like that. So I wouldn't, but I have, a, I have a picture. You know, the, the photos that you've seen, the videos, that, you know, the, this kind of image of what it might be like. When it's rare, though, when you're trying to describe a rare beauty, it becomes more and more challenging, doesn't it? 
If you had been to a museum and you saw a rare sculpture and you came back and you were trying to describe it to me, it would be challenging to try to get to say exactly what it was that was so beautiful about it. Or maybe you had walked on volcanic rock and you were trying to describe, you know, that that a rare unseen beauty and the feeling and the sensation that you had. Maybe that you've seen the northern lights in the wintertime in, in Alaska to try to describe those flashes and colors and how difficult it is. We, we kind of reach for similes and metaphors and ways of saying what well, was like this or like this or like that. And of course, not all beauty is visual. I mean, there's audible beauty, right? To describe a great symphony to somebody else. It's quite difficult. Or, or maybe, um, maybe you have a, a, a sense of scent. You know, the beauty of smell. A college kid that comes home for the first time after being away for a while and smells his mother's lasagna or, or a turkey bacon in the air. Oh, that's a beautiful thing right there, isn't it? And just to come alive, but to describe that. The scent of um, a wife's perfume to a husband or um, a husband's cologne to his wife. To describe that to somebody else. In the way that there is a depth to that sort of beauty. I think in John's gospel, what he's trying to do is to paint a visual picture for us. He's trying to paint a portrait of beauty. And the beauty is the marvelous love and mercy of God. And he does it in so many ways, but it's like one big giant artwork. Our problem is, is we like, we like go in there and we like pull out a little bit. And as beautiful as even the little bits are, you miss the grandeur of the entire portrait when we do this. And so in chapter 3, last week, we have the story of of Nicodemus, this guy who comes in this clandestine meeting to meet with Jesus at night. And we miss how it's set right next to chapter 4 and how this juxtaposition makes all the difference. Today, everything is different, and yet everything is the same. John has all these little facts. I mean, it's like a great painter who, who paints like a, a sword laying on a table or, or you know, a, a crust of bread or a decanter of wine and, and the way that they're sort of set in that portrait. And, and when you see them, you, they, kind of, they kind of make some little marks in your mind, but you don't realize how they're affecting the whole portrait. And John does this wonderfully. He juxtaposes chapter 3, Jesus meeting with Nicodemus, with chapter 4, Jesus in Samaria. Think about this. Nicodemus, a rich, well-respected, well-known nobleman who comes to Jesus by night. Chapter 4, Jesus goes to Samaria at noonday and meets with an ignoble, unknown, obscure woman. Man, a woman, highest rung of society, lowest rung of society, wealthy, poor, Um, a a Pharisee, a man of, of, of religious scruples of the highest mark, a Samaritan woman, despised because she is viewed as a religious miscreant. All these many... Differences, these contrasts, are just, they just strike so, so loudly against it. And so here it is, Jesus going to Samaria, meeting with a Samaritan woman. Samaritans, as a general lot, were despised by Jews. 
They did not want to have any contact with him at all. It's in the text, isn't it? How are you, a Jew, speaking of me, a Samaritan woman? Listen, a rabbi, not even a rabbi, a man, any scrupulous Jewish man would not speak to a woman in public, not even his wife. And here Jesus goes to this well, waits for this woman to come, and then speaks to her. He engages the conversation, and he goes there, listen to this, on purpose. He goes there intentionally, on purpose, as if to meet with this woman, on purpose. I don't have to tell you that many people have looked at this passage, and they have seen... um, this sort of conversation about this woman, especially the conversation about go get your husband, as kind of indicative of the woman's scandalous behavior. She has had five husbands, and the one she has now is not her husband. And they've seen this as sort of um, uh, indicative of her loose moral conduct, that she has perhaps been married and now divorced five times, and now she is cohabitating with a man. Um, that's a, 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 possible, um, a possible way to look at it. In fact, it's been a, a very common way to look at this text. But as scandalous as it might seem to us to read this, um, it, it really didn't happen. I mean, that often for 20 centuries before this one. As common as it is in our century, it was very uncommon in the first century. In fact, so uncommon as to say that it almost never happened. Another way some um, commentators have looked at this is if it's metaphoric. In the Old Testament, there's all this language about Israel being the bride of God. God was a husband to Israel. Israel was his bride. So you get in Hosea, uh, the idolatry of Israel is compared to adultery. You know, Hosea over and over again compares Israel to an unfaithful spouse. Same thing happens in Ezekiel. You should read Ezekiel 16 sometimes. It'll it'll strike you with how... um, how crass the language is about Israel and their adultery. And Isaiah, Jeremiah, all through the Old Testament, it is rife with this language. So some have said what Jesus is talking to this woman about is not just uh, is not an issue of her, her loose, loose moral conduct. It's rather about the religious pluralism that the Samaritans had been involved in. And they had many different gods. And then they're trying to hold that together with the worship of Yahweh. In fact, one commentator suggested that you take that verse 17 that I read to you and that you replace the word husband with God, uh, small g. Uh, you are right in saying I have no God, small g, for you've had five gods and the one you have now is not your God. As if Jesus is saying to her, listen, you need to get serious about worshiping the real God, Yahweh, the creator God. It's a legitimate argument. It doesn't really matter to me whether we're talking, though, about about husbands or other gods or whatever it might have been the issue is, what I want you to notice today, it does matter to me, but it doesn't matter for right now. What I want you to notice right now is the way that this woman's lot is so sad. It's tragic, really. Remember the time of the day. The woman comes to the well at noonday, at the hottest time of the day. Nobody else is there save for this Jew, Jesus. She goes to the well when she knows no one else will be there. When do the women, and if you've ever been into a third world country, you know that people have to get water. They have to go get it every day. 
And so they go out, and I remember being in Africa, and I've seen women carrying these large water pots on their head. I mean, huge water pots, 20 gallons. And they're balancing them on their heads, and they're walking down the street. And they do it every day. And do you know when they do it every day? They don't do it at noon. They go early in the morning because it's cool early in the morning. And they get this water, and they walk home. And when you get there, you'll see these women all gathered around a spring or a spigot, whatever they have. I can imagine, can't you, this woman in Samaria looking out her window early in the morning. There's the well, you know, off to the edge of the town. No houses around the well. Animals come there. People come there. You don't build a house around there. So you, the houses are away from it. And, and she looks out and she sees, you know, down the block, the well. And sees all the women gathered around the well. And she's not there. All the women doing what they do, you know, waiting their turn, talking about the things they talk about, like sports and the weather and chewing tobacco. Whatever your women talk about, I don't know. And they're all gathered around and they're talking about these things. And she's not there. Whatever has excluded her, isolated her, made her feel as if she's not welcome, it's very real and very present. And so she goes at noon. And she sees this guy sitting there. I know what you picture Jesus as with long hair and blue eyes. I don't picture him like that at all. <laughs> you don't. I, I, I picture him with these long curls, you know, like you wear the last Jew guys wear. I, I, like you would see in New York City if you're walking down. I think that's what Jesus looked like. I mean, the Pharisees engaged him regularly. I think he looked like one of them. She sees him and she knows him right away. He's Jewish. Right away. Maybe he's wearing a yarmulke. You got these long strands down the side of his head. And she knows he... You know, as bad it is, go up there with him sitting there, looking down his nose at her, she surely thinks he will. It's better than going when those women are there. For whatever reason. But when she goes there, something crazy happens. He engages her in conversation. He takes time to talk with her. He takes time to be... To, to respect her as a human being and value her and give her dignity and worth. In fact, when his friends get back, they see him talking to her and nobody says a word because they are so shocked. How could you do this? How can you talk to him or talk to her? This woman comes to get water when she thinks nobody will be there. And this is the portrait that John is painting. Do you see this? That Jesus has time for her. That He cares about her. That He goes there to see her. And waits for her. Unlike Nicodemus who comes by night and, and shows up unannounced. He's waiting for her. And He has mercy for her. One of the real dangers of orthodoxy is this. That we can begin to put ideas ahead of people. That we can be more concerned about whether a person thinks right than that they are loved and wanted and cherished by God. That we can sort of judge people. Hold them aloof. Make them feel like they have no place. A couple times a month we can go down and, and serve poor people in, in inner city Akron. And it'd be real easy to be tempted to think, oh, you know, they don't deserve it. 
They've done, you know, they brought it on themselves, whatever, whatever. You don't see that in Jesus, do you? You see him going to the place. It wasn't in the text. In, in, cha- in chapter 4, at the very first of the beginning of verse 3 and 4, Jesus left Judea and started to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. No, he didn't. Most every Jew that he knew would have taken a half a day journey around Samaria to avoid any possible contact. But John says it was necessary, and he says it twice, it was necessary, necessary for him to go through Samaria. He intentionally went through Samaria. He could have avoided her, but he didn't. He could have acted like every other orthodox person in his life. Judged her, but he didn't. He was the one who was righteous and just and moral and outrageously scrupulous about behavior. And yet, he was the one who was kind and compassionate and full of mercy at the same time. It makes me think of Charles Wesley's hymn. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ear. Tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. How do you know that, Wesley? His blood availed for me. That is really good news. In the name of the Father and the Son. No,